Nice to see you all here. Once again, glad you decided to join us this Wednesday night. I feel like our, our uh, Wednesday weather is a little better this go-around. It seemed like there were a couple weeks there that were a little rough, uh, so it's nice to see the sun, and um, we'll have to deal with the wind as springtime is around here. Uh, so we're continuing our study this evening, verse by verse, through the Old Testament. Right now we're in the book of Joshua. So tonight, we're going to be dealing with a few different, uh, different topics that come up as we study through Joshua. Uh, but one thing I think to think about before we get into this is how many of us struggle making decisions? I think that's something I know I certainly identify with, um, that as we go through life, on a daily basis, we are faced with choices we have to make. Uh, there's different situations that arise in life that require us to take initiative, to choose between one or more options, and um, to, to direct our lives in some manner as we do this. And a lot of um, the way we live life, a lot of what we end up becoming is shaped by those decisions that oftentimes the small decisions we make without hardly thinking about them accumulate over time. And a lot of that adds up to big decisions. And that becomes, in turn, really a lot of who we are, is the decisions we make. And so I know in my own life, I've had times in life where I, uh, I forget completely to seek God, and I try to make decisions based on my own wisdom. I've also had situations where I really truly do want to know God's will for a decision, but it doesn't seem to be coming as easily as I would like it to be. Um, I know I've had more than a few situations in life where I've been kind of dragging my feet on a decision, waiting for God to just reveal something, that he would uh, just write it in the sky. He would send an angel to speak to me, something miraculous just to show me, hey, this is what I want you to do. Do this and things will go well. If he'd just tell me, it would be so much easier. But God oftentimes does not work that way. There's certainly situations where he has spoken in a miraculous fashion to reveal his will to people. But I think more often than not, God desires for his people to make informed decisions based on the information and the guidance that he has offered us, and the means he has set in front of us. So it's a lot of what we're going to see tonight. Our focus point this evening is to seek God's will in order to walk in his blessings. And so we're going to see the people of Israel come to a point um, where they have a choice to seek God's will and God's guidance or not to. And the results of that decision will have a big impact on their lives, on their walk with God and with the people around them. Uh, so a little quick context, uh, we'll be picking up tonight in Joshua chapter 9. Uh, so Joshua has introduced a new leader to us, Moses has died, and uh, Joshua has taken the helm as the leader of the nation of Israel, that he has led the people into the promised land and began begin the conquest of Canaan, of the land that God had promised to the people of Israel so long before. And so we've seen God part the Jordan River in a miraculous fashion, bring the people into the land. Uh, they've celebrated and remembered the work God did for them, bringing them out of Egypt, caring for them in the wilderness. And they've recommitted themselves to obey God 
as they go into this next stage of life. We've seen God give the people their first major victory over the city of Jericho. that They conquered it in a way that could only be explained by the power of God. And we also see the people of Israel handed their first major defeat at the hands of the Canaanites. Uh, that last week we saw the sinful actions of one of the Israelite soldiers bring about a defeat in battle at the hands of the Canaanites. Uh, it was later remedied, but we also saw punishment and the consequences of sin in that. And so as we get into this chapter, we'll see some of those, those themes continue at a certain level. So the people of Israel have just had their victory over the city of Ai after um, defeat at the hands of people because of their disobedience. They've renewed their covenant. And so we pick up in chapter 9, verse 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. And as we read through Joshua, I think there's a lot of parallels between the physical events happening here and our spiritual lives. We've talked a little bit in these past few weeks about the concept of faith as a battle, of our relationship with the Lord, of our walk through this world as being a battleground. And it's easy for us to forget that we do have an enemy, that we do have adversaries, uh, that there are those who are sent to oppose the will of God and to keep us from living life the way God has intended. And that's exactly what's happening to the people of Israel here, that these other nations that live in Canaan, that they saw and heard about what Israel had done, what God had done through the people of Israel. And it says in verse 2 that they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So we see that at times, even following God can unite our enemies, that there are those who are opposed to the will of God that would like nothing more than to see God's people brought down and destroyed. And so that's what these people do. And we see similar things happen in our spiritual life as well. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul says, he's, he's writing to the church there in Corinth, he says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. I think that's such a profound verse there. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that there is a wide door for ministry. He has this great opportunity for ministry and there are many adversaries. That God has given him an opportunity to perform the work of the gospel, to share the hope and the power and the peace of knowing Christ. That there's an opportunity for that. But there's also adversaries. There's also opposition. That those two oftentimes go hand in hand. That opportunity and opposition to the work of God in many times go together. And as we read through more of the New Testament, we see a lot of the instructions God gives to the church, especially to those in leadership of the church. In Titus chapter 1, uh, he, Paul gives the qualifications for an elder for a pastor within church, for the men who will lead the church body. Uh, one of the qualifications 
In Titus chapter 1, it says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. So he's saying that a pastor has to know the truth. He has to know God's word. He has to hold fast to God's word so that he can teach and also so that he can rebuke those who contradict God's word. Uh, That God's word is often opposed by people who do not want to see God's will carried out. And so for us in our lives today, we have to be prepared for that. That our mission is to share the gospel, to share the hope and the love of Christ to a world that desperately needs it. But we also have to understand that we're going to face opposition as the people of Israel did. That there's going to be those who stand against us because they don't want to see the word and the will of God progress. Verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? And they said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So the people of Israel have had two great victories now as they've entered into the land of Canaan. We've seen these other nations unite in opposition to Israel. They've seen what has happened, and they want to come together to oppose what Israel and what God is doing here in Canaan. But in this section, we read about another group of people, the inhabitants of Gibeon, another city in the land of Canaan. So this is a city that was in the area that God had promised to Israel. That This was a city that they were supposed to go in eventually and conquer and take hold of for themselves. And so the Gibeonites hear about this and they see some of the truth here. They realize that trying to fight against the nation of Israel is probably not the greatest idea. It's probably not something that's going to go very well for them. And so they come up with an alternate plan. 
It says in verse 4 that they acted with cunning. And so they give this description of what they do. They go in and they take all this worn out stuff and uh, they make this trip to go see Joshua, to make it look as if they had journeyed a long ways from a far country so that Joshua would be deceived, that he would think that they were from an area outside of the promised land, that he would be willing to make peace with them. And so we don't know exactly how they figured this out. Um, There's a good chance that they must have heard some of the information about the nation of Israel and their instructions for conquering the land. Uh, We saw in our previous studies in Exodus chapter 34 and in Deuteronomy 7 that Israel was strictly forbidden from making a peace treaty or an alliance with people who lived in the land of Canaan. That God had given this land to the nation of Israel and that he wanted them to drive out, to wipe out the inhabitants of it so that they would not remain dwelling in the land in order to lead the people of Israel away from God. That that was one of the primary concerns, that having these people engaging in false idolatrous worship of their pagan gods and all of the abhorrent sinful practices that come with that, that living around those people would slowly lead the nation of Israel astray. That's not what God desired. And so they were commanded to drive these people out of the land, to not make any agreements with them. We also saw in Deuteronomy chapter 20 that God gave instructions for Israel to make treaties with other nations who lived outside the borders of the promised land. And so they were allowed to have agreements, to have treaties, to make peace with other nations, other people groups outside of their own land. And so the Gibeonites at some level had figured this out and decided that they would put on this elaborate ruse that they would be able to go meet with Joshua to make peace with him under false pretenses. And we think about how important right information is in making decisions and in interacting with people. Uh, this kind of ties in with an illustration from a few weeks ago. Apparently this is my theme lately. But uh, during World War II, in the lead-up to the D-Day invasion, so the Allied forces are in England. They're preparing to cross the English Channel to go take mainland Europe from Nazi Germany. And so this is one of the key points of the war, that they had to get enough troops over there to establish a foothold on mainland Europe that they could drive out into the rest of the continent from. And they knew they were going to face strong opposition from Germany. And so in the buildup for this, they had all the troops that were preparing to cross the English Channel, to land in Normandy, to go on and take back the rest of Europe. They also created a fake army farther north in England in order to deceive the Germans into thinking that their landing, their crossing of the channel would happen farther to the north. And they went to great lengths to build up this fake army and its appearance. They had inflatable tanks stationed all over the area. That They'd created fake units that didn't exist. They had shoulder patches and insignia for, on officers that were, had no men to lead. They were making radio transmissions for units that did not exist, all in order to make Nazi Germany think that the invasion was coming at a different spot, that they would keep their forces tied up farther to the north and give the Allied forces a better chance to get started conquering, retaking Europe. 
And so, in this case, the, uh, the ruse worked rather well. Uh, the, a lot of the German forces fell for this. They were kept stationed farther north from where the actual fighting was going on, even after the Allied troops had landed. It was very effective in this case. And so it's fortunate for us, for the Allies, that in this case, their ruse worked. Uh, so this is a similar situation we see here, that these men are trying to mislead their opponents, to mislead Israel and Joshua to their advantage. And we think about what that looks in our spiritual lives, um, that we have to remember that there are those who oppose us, who oppose our God. And lies and deceit are one of the chief means that Satan uses to lead astray the people of God. Uh, we see John chapter 8, 44 Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. Uh, we see in Genesis chapter 3, from the very beginning, the first entry of sin into the world was through a lie. That Satan came to Adam and Eve and lied to them. He deceived them. He told them that God's will didn't matter. That the punishment, the consequences God had, had foretold would not happen that they were deceived into acting in sin. And we think about what lies we believe. What are the lies that lead us away from God? That it's easier for us to think that God doesn't care. Or that this thing we're doing isn't going to make that big of a difference. That acting in sin doesn't have that bad of consequences that we can think that we're not good enough or that God is not with us, that God has forgotten, that there's so many lies in our lives that it's easy for us to be drawn away from God by and to forget what he's called us to and what he's promised to us. And the solution for combating lies has to be the truth. And that truth is so important to us as believers, as followers of Christ. In John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus prays that God would sanctify his followers in the truth. He follows that up by saying, your word, God's word, is truth. So knowing the truth is so important for us as we go through our life with Christ. And so we see in the midst of this elaborate scheme by the Gibeonites to deceive Joshua, um, they go in, they tell him that they want to make a covenant with the people of God, with the nation of Israel. And uh, it seems that the Israelites realized at some level that something fishy was going on here. Um, Joshua asks them who, the, who they were, where they came from, and they reply in verse 9, from a distant country. Pretty vague. That doesn't seem like the type of, of excuse you would buy from a teenager. Where were you? Oh, a long ways away. Right. Sure. And so they go through this discussion, and uh, they present all the evidence that they've concocted for this journey. Uh, they have their old, old dried-out bread and uh, their, their burst wineskins and their worn-out clothes. And uh, apparently it looks at least somewhat convincing. So the people of Israel reason 
amongst themselves that this is a compelling story, that this must be true, that these men have come from a distant land, so we should make peace with them. Verse 14, I think, is key in this exchange. So they go back and forth discussing what's going on, the Gibeonites presenting their falsehood to Joshua and to the leaders of Israel. And in verse 14, it says, the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And so that was their key mistake, that they saw what was going on here. They were reasoning through it with their minds. They were discussing it amongst themselves, but they did not seek God's guidance on this. Um, that this is something that was very, very closely related to the work that they were doing, to the mission God had given them to conquer this land. And so this is something that they definitely should have been seeking the will of God in. But they failed to do that, and it says in verse 15, that Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And so the Gibeonites come, they present this lie to the people of Israel, they buy it because they failed to consult God. They failed to seek God's counsel and God's will in this manner. And so they make a covenant and agreement with them, and they swear to it to let these people live. So this will become somewhat of a problem as we read on. The people of Israel have just made this agreement with people that they were supposed to conquer and wipe out. That they've gone against God's will because they failed to seek his guidance. And how often in life are we faced with decisions where we need to seek God's guidance? We need to know what God's will is. And uh, there's certainly situations, as I discussed earlier, where knowing God's will is so, so vitally important to it. But how is it that we do that today? Uh, we see, as we read through the Old Testament, Joshua, and especially Moses, go meet directly with God, speak directly with God, and that God gives them directions in that manner. Occasionally, God still does the same thing, but oftentimes, we're presented with decisions where we have to make educated choices based on what God has revealed to us in other ways. That we have to seek God's guidance, that we don't fall into the same trap. And so the first one that I talked about just a minute ago is knowing the truth. That the more we know the truth, the easier it becomes to recognize falsehood. John 17, 17, I just read, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the more we know God's word, the more we saturate our minds and our hearts with God's word, the more that we know the truth, the more that the truth becomes part of us and guides and directs us. So knowing God's word is so, so very important. Um, and in the life of a believer, so that we can live our lives day to day in a way that honors and glorifies God. When we think about decision making, uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 also comes to mind. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. And so this is kind of the antithesis of what the people of Israel did here. Uh, Proverbs 3 tells us to trust in the Lord. Do not lean on your own understanding. 
The nation of Israel fell into this trap. They were taken by this lie because they were trusting in their own understanding rather than trusting in God and seeking God's guidance and his wisdom. So we have to trust in the Lord with all our heart to understand that God has revealed so much of his will here in his word that he speaks to us in prayer, uh, that he has given us a mission and a purpose in life. And we have to remember that overarching theme when we're faced with decisions, when we're faced with questions, when we're faced with lies, that God has commissioned us to do his work. And so we have to act in a way that is in accordance with that. We have to trust God and remember that following him does not always make sense to us to not lean on our own understanding, that we have to realize that sometimes our finite, our fallible minds will lead us astray from what God has given us to do, that we have to trust in God over ourselves. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. And so the importance of walking in obedience, of putting God first in all of our lives, um, that if we're in the habit of acknowledging God, of submitting to God, of walking in obedience to God in the little things, in the day-to-day decisions that come up on a regular basis, then it makes it that much easier to follow God when the big things come up. That when those big decisions, those big choices arise, we've been practicing and we're ready to make that hard choice of obedience when the opportunity comes. That God guides us and we grow in that as we walk in obedience to him. That we trust in God to lead us and to direct us where we need to be, even when it doesn't make sense to us. And I think one of the great New Testament passages on this is uh, Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 2 tells us to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so another way that we seek God's guidance, that we understand and discern God's will, is again, by walking in obedience to him. The first step, it says there, is to not be conformed to the world, to not be made into the image of the world, to not be led away from what God is doing and become more like the world. Uh, We see that the world around us is opposed to God, that there are certainly good things in it, but we see the effects of sin and rebellion all around us. We see people walking in sin and rebellion all around us, and we've been instructed to not go that same way, that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we're to stand out, we're to be different, we're to live differently from the world around us, that we have to be aware of that. And so in contrast to that, instead of becoming conformed, becoming more like the world around us, we're to be transformed, we're to be changed, that we're to be made more and more into the image of our Savior by the renewal of our mind. That by not following the world, by not becoming more like the world, but instead allowing God and his spirit and his word to transform us, to change us more into his image, to give us the mind of Christ. 
So this is a gradual process that as we walk in obedience, as we continue to know God, to love God more and more, to see him work around us, that that will be transforming who we are, changing who we are so that we'll be more like him. And as we become more like God, it becomes more easy for us to know what the will of God is. That through this difficult, gradual process of sanctification and growth, that it'll become easier and easier for us to think the way God thinks, to see situations the way God sees them, to discern what God's will is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as we do these things, as we exercise that spiritual muscle, that it will grow and it will become stronger and that will lead us and guide us in the ways of our Lord. We have to be seeking God's guidance. We have to be walking in obedience to him. We have to be submitting our lives to his spirit, to his word. And that will give us that wisdom and discernment we need as we continue to follow him. So the people of Israel make peace with the Gibeonites, with this people group they're supposed to conquer. And we see what happens next in verse 16. It says, At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And now we may not touch them. This we'll do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of, oaths that we, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. So the Gibeonites' deceit, their plan worked. That they were able to deceive Joshua, deceive the leaders of Israel, into making a peace treaty with them instead of destroying them, of wiping them out. And then, it says three days later, after they had made this covenant, that the Israelites heard that they were their neighbors, that this people group lived close to where they were, that they were not that far away, that this was someone who did not live in a far-off land, but in fact lived right among them in the land that they were supposed to conquer. And so the response, they set out, it says in verse 17, and reached the cities on the third day. So they journey to where these cities are, it lists them out. And it says in verse 18, the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. What do we do when we fail, when we make mistakes, when we've given in to lies and to deceit? Especially, what do we do in a position of leadership when we're faced with this situation? I think uh, failure can be such a great test of character uh, that we see it's oftentimes easy to do the right thing, to be seen as good, to be seen as strong and courageous when things are going well, 
when things are going according to plan. But what happens when we fail? What happens when we've made mistakes? Uh, I think that reveals so much of our true character, especially when you're looking at a situation of leadership. What happens when your leaders fail, when they have made the wrong decision, when things don't work according to plan? So Joshua in this passage and the rest of the, the elders, the leaders of Israel, they own up to their mistake. They realize something has happened here, and so they go to confront the problem. They set out, they journey to meet again with these people, to talk to them about what had happened. But they stay true to their word, that they had sworn an oath to these people to ally with them, to not destroy them, and so they hold true to that. It says in order that they would not, if I can find the verse here, uh, that they would not see wrath because of the oath that we swore to them, it says in verse 20. And so they're faithful to the promise they had made to the Gibeonites. They're also faithful to God in the midst of their mistake. They realize what they've done, and so they seek to make it right. I think this is just such a great lesson in leadership and in our spiritual lives too. Proverbs 24, verse 16, says that the righteous man falls seven times and rises again. And oftentimes, that's what separates those who persevere and do great things from those who don't, is how they handle failure, how they deal with failure, and whether or not they're able to move on from it. And so we see Joshua and the leaders of Israel own up to their failure and lead the people in obedience to God in the midst of this. That the people grumbled against them. They were unhappy uh, because they would not be able to conquer these cities and these lands. They wouldn't be able to take the spoils of victory from this and to dwell in the same area the way they should have been able to had the leaders sought God's guidance in the first place. But they make the most of the situation. They walk in obedience in the situation they're in and realize that there's going to be hardships and there's going to be challenges because of their mistakes. But they don't shy away from that. They embrace it head on. In verse 22, we see the rest of the situation dealt with. So the people of Israel go to meet with the leaders. Let me back up a minute here, actually. In verse uh, 21, the leaders say, let them live, speaking of the men of Gideon, so that they may become cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. So in verse 22, Joshua meets with the people. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying, we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God has commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. 
So Joshua owns up to the mistake. He moves forward to make the most of it. They meet with the people of Gibeon and confront them on this. Why did you lie to us? Why did you deceive us and tell us this falsehood? And the people of Gibeon admit it. They own right up to it and explain their reasoning. It says in verse 24 that it was told to your servants, to the Gibeonites, that the Lord your God had commanded Moses to give you all the land, to destroy all the inhabitants before you. So we fear greatly for our lives. That they saw the work God had been doing. They saw what was going on. And they feared God because of it. And so we see in their response here that they're kind of close to understanding the full picture. That they've seen what God has done. They've seen the fate that awaits. And they understand that there's no way they can oppose the people of Israel in battle. And so they tell this lie. They make up this story in hopes of saving their lives. That they were almost there to getting what had happened. We think about uh, the story of Rahab a few chapters back, that she saw and heard about what God had been doing. And because of that, she wanted to ally herself with the people of Israel in a similar way to the people of Gibeon. But we see Rahab come to know God and to live among his people. The people of Gibeon let that fear, instead of leading them to repentance, lead them into lying and deceit. That they had the wrong response to the right emotion in this situation. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 speaks of the godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And these these men here were close to that, but just didn't quite get it. That they had a sorrow, they had a fear that led them to act in opposition to God, to try to change God's plan and to trick God's people, when instead of that, they could have repented and seen God work. Uh, it's interesting to see what God does with this situation. So Joshua comes to the people and he pronounces a curse on them. He says in verse 23, Therefore you are cursed. Some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And so they stay true to their promise, to the covenant they had made with these people, to allow them to live, to spare them. And their sentence for this lying and deception is to serve the people of Israel, specifically to serve at the tabernacle, drawing water, cutting wood. We think about all that we read about in our previous studies in uh, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, about the sacrifices that went on at the tabernacle that would later go on at the temple once it was built. We think about how much work had to happen for all these sacrifices to be made. They had to have wood to burn all the animals on. They had to have water for all their ceremonial washings as well as just the regular cleanup after sacrificing that many animals. But there was a lot of work to do here. And so these people were sentenced to serve God in this way, that they had to do this hard labor in order for the sacrifices to be carried on, uh, that they would serve the people of Israel for their deceit. And as we read later through the New Testament, uh, these people became known as the temple servants. 
And it's cool to see uh, if we look at the book of Ezra in chapter 2. So Ezra is written after the nation of Israel had been exiled from the land, that they disobey God, as Moses foretold they would, that they're kicked out of the land, taken into exile by Assyria and Babylon for 70 years in punishment for their disobedience and false worship of God. And in the book of Ezra, a group is allowed to come back to Israel to rebuild the temple and begin settling in Jerusalem once again after their time of punishment has passed. But as you read through that, Ezra gives a list of all the different peoples and families that came back to Israel. And we see him reference this same people, the, drawer, or the temple servants, the cutters of wood and the drawers of water, that some of them were taken away from Israel in exile with the Israelites, and then some of them chose to come back to Israel to help rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem. And so God used this mistake. He was still able to redeem it to bring more people to see his glory and to bring them even into relationship with himself. Uh, That some of these people had undoubtedly been serving amongst the temple for a long time and came to know and understand who God was, to put their faith and their trust in him. And it's amazing to see the power of God through this. That Joshua and the people of Israel made this mistake because they did not seek him. And there were consequences for that, but God was still able to redeem that and to use it for his glory. What a great God that's able to do such a thing, to use the mistakes and the lies of those who oppose him, the mistakes of his servants, in order to help more come to know him and his love and to bring glory to him. And so we think about what it is that we should do with all of this. Uh, That brings us back to our focus point for this evening. That as we go through life, like the people of Israel, we need to seek God's will in order to walk in his blessing. That God is great. That God is able to use even our mistakes for his glory. But if we want to continue to experience that grace and that blessing of close communion with God, that we have to seek his will and trust in him. So as we go through our lives, let's keep all this in mind. Let's remember these lessons that we need to seek truth, that truth is so important for us, truth revealed in God's word, that we will be confronted with lies, lies from Satan, lies from people who want to mislead us, to lead us away from God, that we have to saturate ourselves with truth and at the same time be on the watch for falsehood, be quick to recognize it and to fight it with truth. And when we fall short, when we make mistakes, that we have to own up to those, that we realize what we've done and we move forward in obedience. We don't try to cover them over. We don't try to reverse things we can't change but we confess those mistakes. We repent of those mistakes before God and we trust him to work through them to continue to bring himself glory and to draw us into closer relationship with him, bringing us where we were meant to be. Let's go to him in prayer. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, for your power. I thank you that you are able to work through 
even our mistakes, that you are able to use any situation, Lord, even the lies of the enemy in order to bring yourself glory. I pray that you would be with us as we go through life, Father, uh, that you would give us the motivation, the discipline, the discernment to seek you in all situations, to be saturating our minds and our hearts with your word, with your truth, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to be drawing closer to you day by day, that we would look forward with joy to your return, God, and that we would be seeking to help more and more join us in that, to share the love and the hope you have with a dying world. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.